0: By Thor's Hammer,
1: by the Sons of Warfad, you shall be avenged. It is I, your wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your fun and bouncy... PG movie for families and eight-year-olds. And definitely there's no part of this episode where I say, screw that. <laughs> Bruiser Jake.
0: And yes, we were talking about Galaxy Quest. Everybody loves Galaxy Quest. And if you don't love Galaxy Quest, that's because you wrote it off and never actually sat down
1: and watched the film. Holden, uh, as an actor, are you familiar with the works of David Mamet?
0: Absolutely, 100%.
1: Well, uh, in one of his books on film, David Mamet... Uh, Described our topic as this. The Godfather, A Place in the Sun, Dodsworth, <laughs> Galaxy Quest. These are perfect films. I... They start with a simple premise and proceed logically and inevitably towards a conclusion both surprising and inevitable. There you go. Galaxy Quest is a perfect movie. <laughs> it's insanely like self-contained, yet reaches out beyond its its uh, plot. It's funny. It's uh, evocative. It's thrilling. It's it's kind of like I know that people like really love this movie, but like rewatching it for uh, this ep- for this episode, like I was just truly floored how like things are set up, things are paid off. Uh, the effects are really well done and effective. The uh, pastiche and homage, uh, like winks at the fandom, but never like truly insults them. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible. It's a, it's as close. It's one of the best Star Trek movies ever made. Yeah, I definitely think
0: you could study its script in like a screenplay class. But at the same time, and then you have this cast, this cast of unbelievable actors: Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shaloub, Sam Rockwell, Daryl Mitchell, and you know. That's not even including the Thermians, or what, what I believe that's their name. That's but their it's name. like, it's like ridiculous this cast, and then it's like kind of incredible that this movie exists, and especially in a world where I, I think definitely back in this time, like comedies in the '90s, there were so many like Mom and Dad Save the Universe, <laughs> or you know, movies that like start with like a ridiculous premise. Uh i.e. A- actual aliens come down thinking that, you know, people who are making, like, the actors from a- this Star Trek show are real and get them involved in an actual, like, intergalactic war. Uh You know, usually, like, that. That it's the schlockiest, like, most ridiculous, most, I guess it's on, so I'll watch it kind of fair. And then it just ends up being this, like, incredibly, like, emotionally resonant, funny as hell, like just so much good good stuff going on It
1: fits into a it's so weird that um, uh, as we'll get into it a lot of the people uh, involved in this movie were and the higher ups were scared that this movie would be a sci-fi comedy in along the lines of like space balls or cone heads yeah. or uh, you know Mars attacks or something uh, kind of goofy whereas the sci-fi comedy is like maybe one of the richest and most rewarding like genres of everything from ghostbusters to guardians of the galaxy True. to the first men in black to uh stuff like um a lot of uh a lot of british stuff like attack the block and world's end like uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy like there's so much like emotion and realness that you can tell Without having everything be this dour, life or death, like, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, direct homage. Mm -hmm. Hell, even, well, now that I think about it, even Star Wars and Star Trek has lots of comedy. Sure. But Galaxy Quest fits so perfectly in that sci-fi comedy Uh, almost, I don't don't know, movie. It's just such a good movie. Yeah, and that's why I really pushed
0: to do this episode, because I love movies like these. This is definitely, and that's my gush for sure, this is definitely... The type of film that I it reluctantly watched because it was on. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably literally just watched it because I thought Sigourney Weaver was like Yawa Wawa. And uh, You know those
1: were it, fake boobs, right, Holden? Sure. You know, probably. You know they were fake. But in the, She would whip out the uh the little extra padding and like uh throw them at people on set. That's fun.
0: <laughs> but instead, I got this like fucking good ass comedy that has withstood the test of time. And it was so ahead of the game when it came to fandom mm-hmm. and the convention circuit. And like, and I, I definitely remember seeing a documentary that was actually used as research for this film, uh, Trekkies, back in the day as well. And I, that was one of the first times I realized we're really open to how devoted uh, the Star Trek fan base is and how incredible that community is and how incredible the actors within that community are as well in terms of their convention presence and all that kind of stuff. And that gave, like, a really good foundation for what this is making fun of. But it's not even making fun of it. It's, like, making... I don't know. It's almost like giving it its due more so than anything else. Like, I love that everyone always talks about how this movie... Like, one of the great things about this movie is, like, it never disrespects, like, the the Star Trek fans. Like, it never disrespects the Star Trek actors, and I don't think. You know, I think it treats the whole thing with respect and that's why it gets away with being this like amazing heartfelt sci-fi comedy
1: and at the time you know uh the dominant attitude towards star trek was pretty much defined by like william shatner in that old snl (laughs) sketch where he's like don't you you people get a life this show is fake you people are idiots (laughs) um and having you know this twist on it be so accepting of the fans and you know having Uh, Justin Long's, I love that. It's a very, Justin Long's character has a very, he's this, uh, young fan who has weirdly intimate knowledge of all the engineering of this fake ship and, um, the, uh, scene where he like is contacted through the magic space, uh, communicator and he starts apologizing to Tim Allen's character and he's like, I know it's not real. I know, you know, this is a show. You know, it's 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 a show. I I just appreciate it, and I'm not some weird. Fr- and then Tim Allen interrupts him, and he's like, "It's real. It's all real. I need your help." And he was like, "I knew it. I knew it, man." Like, and the joy that he like feels and that validation is so contagious. It's so. And uh, yeah, this is uh, 1999. Uh, America is still innocent. Yeah. Uh, we conquered the Soviet Union. Everything's going to be great forever. Uh, Comic Con culture, loot crate culture, is still a few years away. Nine
0: Eleven hasn't created loot crate culture yet, so uh, that's that's still a ways away. Uh, I mean,
1: <laughs> I d- I never said that. It's there's two distinct steps.
0: No, but no, yes. you heard it first. Uh, loot crate the sign up thing where they send you a creative nerd stuff every single month. That was definitely created by the act
1: of 9-11. I'm not a historian or an anthropologist. I'm going to suggest there's like at least three steps between that and uh, paying $30 for a Doctor Who keychain you don't really want <laughs> is I feel like there's a few more steps there. But yes, eventually one led <laughs> to the other.
0: So here we go. Galaxy Quest, a sci-fi comedy film released in 1999, directed by Dean Parasot and written by David Howard and Robert Gordon, is about a cast of a fake Star Trek-style show who get visited by real aliens, thinking the show was a documentary and how they get whisked away to actually enact an interstellar conflict. The film did middling at the box office, but since it's become a cult hit, both with Trekkies and comedy fans alike... For its fantastic writing, parody, performances with effects that still hold up to this day, surprisingly. Yeah, we didn't even get into that, too. The practical and even the CGI is like not bad, especially
1: for a 1999. It's, holding, it's literally the big dick kings of movie special effects. It's Stan Winston doing the creature effects and the ship models. And, uh,. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic doing the CG. Yeah. You, you literally can't do better than those two companies.
0: And they did such a good job of a thing that like has since been heavily criticized, where they didn't lean too heavy on the CGI. They incorporated the practical into the CGI well enough, and that's always the trick. It, it feels like, kind of like we went too far with Star Wars Episode One and the prequel trilogy, and then we reeled it back in a little bit with Lord of the Rings, and this, this film also had that sweet spot. Um, and then we went back too far with The Hobbit, but what are you going to
1: do? We talked about it in um, the Fifth Element episode, but this was a weird uh, uh, moment where like CG was getting introduced more heavily but it, but still, practical effects, which were literally at the height of the art form of practical effects, were still heavily involved, and so we get those beautifully shot, fully actual physical ship models. Uh, you know, uh, Saris's ship, this weird uh, tooth and flesh monstrous battleship, and the uh, what was it, the. Oh, no, I I almost, I remember it's the NTE.
0: Which is, by the way, not the Enterprise is what that stands for. Because
1: if they ever got sued by Paramount, they were like salivating at the idea to be like, do you know what NTE stands for? (laughs) Not the Enterprise. Um, But uh, all of those are actual ship models that they built. And they, you know, use the trick where they filmed the uh, ship with a moving camera and then filled in the background layer in post. And it just creates such this amazing physicality, like you really believe they're flying out there. But it's, yeah, it's just so, it had no right to be this well executed, especially as we go into the uh, production because this had some speed bumps along the way.
0: Yeah, definitely in post-production, dealing with DreamWorks and them completely not getting what this movie was. And it's funny that you say it's a perfect movie because it's definitely a different movie from what they had originally intended, but yet maybe that worked out for the best for them. Maybe, maybe taking some of the, the blueness out of it uh, helped them. I think I probably would have preferred it with my taste personally, <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to do? I guess we don't get Sigourney Weaver screaming fuck <laughs> on this film. Uh, So here we go. It starts with the spec script. David Howard wrote a spec script called Captain Starshine after seeing an IMAX presentation that ran a trailer for a film called Americans in Space, which was narrated by Leonard Nimoy. And he's like, God, these guys just can't get away from... That show that they were a part of. They can't get out of, like, being affiliated with Star Trek. Like, for the rest of their lives, they're always going to be doing sci-fi-based, fair, you know, and stuff related to their character on that show. And then it popped in his head, what if we do a story about real aliens visiting these actors and taking them or whisking them away on this, like, whirlwind adventure. And so the script ended up, uh, he writes the script, script ends up in the hands of DreamWorks Pictures and specifically award-winning producer Mark Johnson, who um, was responsible for films like The Natural and Rain Man.
1: So Captain Starshine is uh, almost a completely different movie than what we end up with. Uh, uh, One of the weirdest things about uh, Captain Starshine is uh, that's the name of the uh, Jason Nesmith character in this version of the film. Uh, he's like one of the opening scenes is him not you know doing a great audition for a Shakespeare play, and then the director uh, going like, "Hey, he's pretty good," and the producer going like, "We can't hire him. That's fucking Captain Starshine." Uh, the twist in that version of the movie is that the Alexander Dane character, the kind of like brainy uh, guy who played the old alien. Uh, I, I, this is so weird in this in Captain Starshine uh he the Alexander Dane character like who would have been Alan Rickman uh invests all of his convention money into trans-dimensional warp gate technology <laughs> he then conquers an alternate dimension and rules it as a like flash Gordon Ming the merciless um, like character and the rest of the movie once that's discovered is about just like fighting this guy as a, it it changes. It's, it kind of loses the star Trek angle. Right. It like a lot of it is just kind of weird. He's
0: lucky to even get uh credit at all, probably from the sounds of what the original script was. Mark Johnson reads it though. And is, it says, I'm probably the last person to be doing science fiction. But then I read this script from David Howard. I saw the potential for humor and the concept of actors in space. Literally just really likes the concept and, uh, you know, this also goes to show that you don't need to be a Star Trek fan in order to get this from the beginning, even just this basic idea. However, not a big fan of the script. And uh, so they hire this guy named Bob Gordon to get the screenplay credit in the end. He went on to write Men in Black 2 and Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events and uh, is the one who really gives this like the work over treatment.
1: According to my research, uh, Bob Gordon uh didn't even read David Howard's original script. They just sat, you know, the DreamWorks uh, producers sat him down and was like, we love this idea about space and typecasting and actors. Uh, what if Star Trek but real? Just work with that. And uh, they're like, do you, want, do you want to see the original script? And Bob Gordon was like, don't even show it to me. <laughs> D- thanks, for, thanks for the seed, I'll figure this out. Yeah. And um, apparently a big breakthrough was, uh, during the, uh, you know, the initial drafts, they were running into just like kind of pacing issues and just like where the heart of the movie was. And at a meeting, Bob Gordon, uh, just walked in and was like, what if they loved being in Star Trek? What if they actually miss it? What if like, it's not about them resenting it, but like wanting to recapture the glory days. Uh And everyone was like, oh, that's like, that's a twist because, you know, again, uh, If we're going by the old assumptions, uh, the cast hates the fans. The cast uh, makes overblown things about being typecast all the time. You know, uh, Leonard Nimoy famously wrote two books.
0: Right. I am not Spock. And I am Spock. I am Spock. The follow-up where he accepted that he, his lifelong legacy. Yeah, totally. Uh, Absolutely. And taking some of that cynicism out, I think, was a very good call. Absolutely. And it's still in there a little bit. There's still a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Alan Rickman kind of gives that that side of it, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit and plays the spock a little bit in that way, uh for sure. But yeah, they found I think a more a more positive balance and uh man, the the humor throughout is just so smartly established. And I think we find come to find that it's because I think our director really let his cast come in and innovate and 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 make choices and really uh, do really interesting things with the, the fantastic script. So,
1: yeah, that uh, brings our director into the game Harold Ramis. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. That's right, Galaxy Quest, directed by Harold Ramis.
0: Yeah, initially Mark Johnson did want Dean Parasot to direct, uh, but and he was just coming off directing another film for Johnson called Home Fries, which is always that movie I saw at Blockbuster and like just was like never rented, though, because it was called Home Fries, starring Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson. But DreamWorks wanted Ghostbusters director, Harold Ramis, instead. Tim Allen said, I had a very peculiar lunch with uh Jeffrey Katzenberg and Harold Ramis. Katzenberg pitched me the idea of the commander character and then they started talking and it became clear that Ramis didn't see me for the part it was pretty uncomfortable for some reason he was hung up on having an action star who could be funny versus a comedian who could do action Ramis wanted Alec Baldwin to play the lead and uh, Alec Baldwin turns it down later he wants Steve Martin uh, and then Kevin
1: Klein I think Kevin, Kline actually Kevin Klein actually would uh, have been all
0: right, also good but Tim Allen kills
1: this role a uh, pre DUI Mel Gibson was also considered for pre- for the part nice, yeah.
0: I think even Klein, though, doesn't have what we don't didn't realize. I didn't even realize going into this that Tim Allen had and that's a true love for sci fi mm-hmm. and a true actual enthusiasm for to the point where again, he's coming in and being like. They'd have to check the atmosphere. They're going to leave the ship. I'm sorry. We can't just walk out of the ship without checking the atmosphere with some kind of gadget. You know, I mean, that's Tim Allen saying that stuff, which is fantastic to have that around. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they're fighting over Tim Allen. Sigourney Weaver wants in on the film, but is also having issues, which is kind of crazy
1: because she was, clear, you know, Ghostbusters and all that, uh, directed by Ramis. Well, they wanted, they wanted unknowns. They didn't want to be remi- – or not unknowns, but just people – unassociated people not
0: connected to sci-fi specifically which is crazy though weaver said frankly it's those of us who have done science fiction movies that know what is funny about the genre i told them i know how to play this woman and luckily the project stayed alive after harold left spoiler alert Allen is then cast, followed by Sigourney, and Ramis, therefore, leaves the film. He apparently did later call Mark Johnson when the film came out and told him just how wrong he was about Tim Allen being cast as the commander, and I think that's fantastic, at least. Uh, Johnson then fought hard to get Dean Parasot into the gig as director, which I get. Like, why would the production company just be like, yeah, that guy who made that Home Fries movie, he's got to direct this sci-fi comedy, but luckily he got him in.
1: Supposedly, uh... He, Mark didn't even offer it to him and it was Parasot who read the script and like burst into his office and was like, why don't you ever give me scripts like this, buddy? <laughs> like, come on, I'm I'm young, I'm hungry, I want a chance. That's funny. And uh, the departure of Ramus was a massive shakeup to the production because uh, DreamWorks was still relatively young and it, it really feels like uh, Katzenberg wanted that Ghostbusters magic. He, they wanted that emblem entertainment Kind of magical, yeah. Uh, fa- you know, family is where you find it kind of tentpole movie. And uh, without Ramis, they didn't quite know what to do.
0: Parasat said, I see comedy as tragedy, so I looked at the film as a drama that happened to be funny. So, yeah, Tim Allen already riding high on the hog at this point. I mean, this guy's career in the 90s was so fucking absurd. He's got Home Improvement as the hit sitcom at that point. The Santa Claus film series at that point as well. You also, he's also been doing Toy Story as well at This Boy's Buzz Lightyear.
1: I mean, the Jason Nesmith uh, captain voice is pretty much just Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, It's, it's it's a one to one voice.
0: He started out in stand up in Detroit. It was probably the most successful person to come out of the comedy boom. I mean, it, yeah, and absolutely, he went to prison for almost three years because he got busted at an airport
1: with over a pound of cocaine. Whoa, I know it was over, over a, pound. a pound! He only got three years for over a pound of cocaine. I'm he must have had a really sure. good lawyer. Uh, or maybe it was he completely snitched on every other drug dealer he knew.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Tim Allen said, Dean didn't put a heavy emphasis on the sci-fi elements as much as I did. As we're disembarking from the landing on a foreign planet, I said, hey, wait, we can't just land here. Somebody has to take a tricorder reading of the atmosphere. (laughs) Does it have oxygen? Uh, I just love it. But uh, this is the reasoning. Tim Allen said, I told Dean that all the sci-fi people are going to hate this if we cut corners. And I think that's fucking, so it just goes to show He's not just an actor casting a job. He, like, cares about this film, as does Sigourney Weaver. Again, hugely successful this time. Oh, yeah, real quick with Tim Allen, by the way. At this, around this point in his career, he had, in the same week, the number one show on television, the number one movie in the box office, and the best-selling book uh, of all, in, 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 the, in America. Like, in the same week.
1: That's fucking crazy. It's needless to say, he had all of America wondering... Uh,
0: uh Sigour- I loved Time Improvement. Tim Allen,
1: at, genuinely a sci-fi nerd. He has a huge movie prop collection. He has an original Robbie the Robot and Gort from uh, Day the Earth Stood Still. Phasers, he stole props off of Galaxy Quest and had them framed. He
0: actually made Sigourney Weaver reluctantly sign a piece of uh, alien <laughs> uh, p- uh, memorabilia that he stole And she literally wrote on it, um, I forget what she, oh no, I forget exactly what she wrote, but she was just like, thanks for stealing this or something like that, Sigourney. And (laughs) he was like, what the fuck? (laughs) But yeah, loves it. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, also hugely successful, known for stuff like Ghostbusters and Alien. Alan said, we all came from different places as actors and the film was certainly a risk particularly for Sigourney, who had just finished a space film with Alien Resurrection, and this was a gutsy turn for her. She did a really great job playing this insecure actress who wasn't the hero. Sigourney Weaver said, The first thing I said to Dean was that Lieutenant Tawny Madison had to be blonde. And she had to have big boobs. I loved Tawny from the first moment I read the part. To me, she was what a lot of women feel like, including myself, in a Hollywood situation. And the role really made her feel seen. She said, I scream when I see a spider. I feel like I was telling the truth about myself and science fiction through Tawny in Galaxy Quest, which I think is uh, awesome. She
1: apparently (laughs) refused to remove her blonde wig, uh, even when not filming, and would take it home with her. Uh, She apparently really enjoyed kind of embodying this uh this alternate version of her career where like you know maybe a few early movies don't quite work out the way she wanted and she needs a TV role.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. She did end up stealing that blonde wig as well uh when they after they wrapped. Tony Shalhoub. I mean, so good in this movie. Like so funny and great. I just I'm such a fan. He was up for the part with Sam Rockwell, uh, who ended up taking that part, the part of Guy. So he gets the call to come in and read as the tech sergeant, and Shaloub's take on the character was actually based on David Carradine's performance in the show Kung Fu. He said, "'I'd heard he was high the entire time, "'and whether it was true or not, "'we used that as a jumping-off point for Fred Kwan. "'It's 1999, 15 years after the Galaxy Quest TV series ended, "'and Fred Kwan is just a burnout "'with one foot outside reality. And so he and Parasad ended up rewriting a bunch of his scenes to instill this choice for his character, which really made it come to life.
1: I mean, it was, and uh, even one of the producers in the documentary I watched uh, said that the Fred Kwan character was a little, was extremely underwritten, and it was Shaloub's kind of choices. And Asian. <laughs> he is wearing what I can, like, it's clearly. I. So this kind of like works out in old, as an old Star Trek reference because there was so much like weird race bending and uh, even uh, Leonard Nimoy, a lot of his early work involved like yellow face sometimes. Mm. Um, yeah, you no, know, uh, Tony Shalhoub's character, especially in the opening sequence, has like weird eyeliner that elongates his eyes. Like, I th- there's something there's something to that character that was left on the cutting room floor, but the remnants are still like weirdly present.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, Shaloub even said he, I don't have the direct quote, but he even talked about how he like was surprised they even wanted him to read for the role. He was like, this is clearly an Asian guy. And so (laughs) that's, I think, what led them to rewriting it so drastically Mm -hmm. uh, with this choice of him being stoned out as because I don't think they had a clear idea. Obviously, if they're bringing in, if there was... Kind of obviously an Asian character, and then they brought you know, and they're bringing in other actors that aren't Asian, like literally, they were kind of fumbling with that one role, and it made it such a standout with Shaloub, he just killed it. Uh, Sam Rockwell, as I mentioned before, threw some method into the madness for his role. Rockwell said, I was constantly pacing and drinking coffee to try and get and uh, and make myself insanely scared. What's great about Bill Paxton and Aliens is that he's playing it authentic. He's really scared. And that's what makes it funny. Uh so I went for that. And, and it's also uh at this point in his career, you know, he's he's definitely like, I want to be this like method career character actor. I want to do all this like great work. And he actually took some convincing for him to take. Galaxy Quest, but he realized, uh, he saw, I believe it was Sean Penn in Fast Times at Richmond High convinced him. Mm. He saw that actor in that role and he was like, I could do movies like this. I can do, I can do characters like this and still do, as he put it, still do The Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I, 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 should tr- I should be, you know, really spreading out a little bit more. And he's so fucking great in that part. Like, I, I, it's such a good role for him, and it's such a silly movie for him to be a part of. And he just makes it so well. Uh, Daryl Mitchell had already worked with Dean Parasat on the film Home Fries, and just totally rocked his audition for this part. Felt like this was his sophomore year, essentially, of acting training under Dean Parasot in this film. And he does a fantastic job as well. But I I don't know if anyone does as good of a job in this movie as Alan Rickman, who started out in the theater, no surprise there, doing like Chekhov and Shakespeare and all that good stuff. I mean, clearly a classically trained actor. Uh, But it was really his turn as Hans Gruber in Die Hard in 1988 that cemented him as one of the greatest villain actors ever. And this is proved time and time again, Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Severus Snape and Harry Potter. Sam Rockwell said Alan Rickman was very instrumental in making sure the script hit the dramatic notes and everything had a strong logic and reason behind it. He wanted the Grabthar's Hammer moment to be set up perfectly. So it had that emotion when he delivered it to Patrick Breen who is a fantastic actor. Daryl Mitchell said he was by the letter, always focused on the preparation, even though it was a comedy. Alan Rickman approached that movie like any drama. And Tony Shalhoub said that moment between Alan and Patrick is so beautiful and a real tribute to Dean's skill that he could score with all the comedic moments in the film and still deliver incredible heartfelt moments. So I feel like the combination of actors like Tony Shalhoub coming in and making comedic choices to to really, really make that stronger uh you have alan rickman coming in and making sure the drama is what it needs to be and making sure that the script is sound
1: can we give a micro gush can we give a micro gush about that moment it happens kind of towards the end of the movie and uh throughout the film uh one of alan rickman's like kind of uh running jokes is that he hates his catchphrase uh, by grabthar's hammer by the sons of warvan you shall be avenged at the convention uh people are dressed up like him with the weird kind of uh head tentacles and going like by grabthar's hammer and he's just like who cares right um he uh is prodded to be like by grabthar's hammer what a savings at the electronics store opening yeah and you know uh when uh and the whole time he's like kind of Looking out for himself, he's kind of uh, resentful of his situation on the Thermian ship. But having worked with Patrick Breen as Quellec, who uh, idolizes him the most, who represents the most irritating version of this obsessive fan that he spent his life battling, when it came time to comfort him in his moment of need, Rickman delivers those words by Grabthar's hammer, by the Sons of War van. You shall be avenged with such gravity, and it brings such peace and calm to uh Quellec's face that, like, you cannot watch that scene without crying. It's so good, maybe a perfect moment in a perfect movie.
0: In this very funny film, in a film that really does not go for that at all until that point, is really great. Maybe you could maybe argue like the Tim, the moment Tim Allen's character. Uh, admits that, you know, that they're from a fake show. Oh, like okay. Like, maybe that,
1: but... Let me, t- let me tell this anecdote.
0: Yeah, yeah, give me the okay. anecdote. Okay, so yeah, in the beginning yeah, of the, the filming,
1: uh, Rickman was kind of at odds with Tim Allen, because uh, Rickman is a trained actor. He is, like, uh, used to a certain level of professionalism, and Tim Allen was on full Tim Allen mode. He was, like, making dick and ball jokes directly to the camera. He was just, like, slacking off until he had to be on set. Like, he was just kind of having fun with it and being the the first name larger than life american comedian man and rickman was kind of just like a little annoyed by it um during the scene where tim allen's character jason nesmith is uh talking to enrico Colantoni's character which we have to talk about him we'll talk he about absolutely him in just a second happened, yeah yeah where uh this pure innocent this absolute like beacon of trust and naivete that has been uh there for the uh, throughout the entire movie is basically on his deathbed having been uh tortured beyond comprehension by our main villain saris uh and uh it's up to tim allen uh forced at gunpoint basically to like tell him that it's all been a ruse that it's all been a lie that he's been lying to him this entire time um oddly enough steven spielberg this was the only time spielberg was on set And uh, the director, Dean Parasat, uh, literally uh, was filming this confession scene. And he hears from behind him like, oh, man, Tim Allen's really good in this. And he almost whips around to be like, I said quiet on the set. And sees that it's Steven Spielberg (laughs) and immediately goes like, oh, fuck, ah shit. (laughs) But after several takes, uh, Tim Allen's performance is getting more raw. He's getting like visibly shaken. Uh, The whole crew is like kind of quieted by this. And they call cut and Tim Allen kind of gets up and is just visibly uh, kind of disturbed and says, uh, I, I I don't I don't feel good. I don't there's I don't I don't like the feelings I'm having right now. I need to go to my trailer and kind of storms off the set. And in the ensuing silence, Alan Rickman just blurts out loud. My God, I think he's finally experienced acting. <laughs> Which That's is amazing. Awesome. That's awesome. an amazing Rickman.
0: That's an amazing Rickman. Hold on, I didn't
1: do it right. I didn't do it right. My God, I <laughs> think he's experienced acting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's awesome, and uh, makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like their relationship, from descriptions of other people, it was very like that. Like Alan would go on these like comedic rants and <laughs> stuff, and Rico would just be sitting there like not there for it, just there <laughs> to like do his job and like be an actor. And uh, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And and I think it shows in the film too in a great way. As for the Thermians, uh, Enrico Colantoni and Missy Pyle are definite standouts. Colantoni spent a ton of time pre-audition creating these mannerisms and vocal techniques for the character, comes in as Mathisar, blows the room away, obviously, with this incredibly well-constructed, like concept for this entire race of aliens gets ins- ends up working with Dean Parasat on what they refer to as Thermian School to get all the actors on the same page.
1: According to the uh, documentary I watched in Colin Tony's uh, interview portion, he tried a bunch of different characterizations and none of it was really sticking and he thought he had blown it. And before he was about to leave, he was like kind of mustering the words to be like, well, uh, maybe wait, uh how about, uh and Parasat was like, no, no, okay, wait, do you have one more thing? And he was like, uh, yeah, and he did av- He did the what we now know as the Thermian voice, which he claims was a uh, vocal exercise that he learned at the Yale School of Drama. Ah. And uh, the thing about the Thermian voice, which I can barely do, uh, but it's registered high in the voice, you kind of have to have it blast out of the front of your face. Uh, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, I had to, I immediately, upon hearing this, Uh, cause Colatoni said that, uh, it activates all the resonators in your head, Uh that there are seven like resonation places where the human voice can kind of come out. And I came running to Marie and I was like, baby, you had opera training. You are actually, you, you know, voice stuff. Please help me. Please help me. I'm your stupid fiance. You are so smart and pretty. And I am so ugly and dumb, uh, which is how we talk. That's how we talk. And I was like, does this make sense? And she was like, yes, because the way most people speak, the way most adults speak, uh, it's kind of like vocal fry. It kind of comes from like the bottom of your throat. And that's how most people talk. But babies speak from or like yell from the resonation points in your face, from your sinuses, from your forehead. It's like a loud, clear, resonant voice. And uh, what, yeah, what should be just a, a, vocal ex- a vocal exercise in order for you to re- relax your pharynx and project better in a theater setting. What that does is that's how a child, that's how a baby speaks. It's uh. not a, it's a purely innocent voice. It is the voice of an alien. Oh, uh, that's so Forced funny. to speak with new human uh, vocal cords and, voc- and like uh, with a human body. And so- even though it was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment choice, it worked so perfectly for these characters. Because again, these are octopus people that are just crammed into the form of a human with barely any understanding of how their human bodies work. And from that choice... The way that they walk, like uh, marionette puppets. I think it was. Um, it was
0: uh, they approached them as happy Jehovah's Witnesses, taking everything in with love and acceptance.
1: The way they clap with weird. The mm-hmm. way that they laugh, like oh, la, 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 like everything about him as these naive aliens just attempting to imitate humanity, but getting it ever so slightly wrong. Yeah. The uh, resonate the resonator voice that Colin Tony kind of. Uh, brought up, worked. It was just a weird serendipity thing that uh, that I just find fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, Missy Pyle, who uh, went on to have a wonderful career, um, her character was kind of just a throwaway. She kind of yeah. just had that like, uh, joke in the limo and that was pretty much it for her. Um, it was apparently a note from Spielberg that said that uh, there's not enough women in the movie and that her character should be uh kind of beefed up and that's why she's introduced as a love interest for Tony Shaloub which is I think very funny uh-huh and uh in the mix is a uh, is a young Rain Wilson as yes, long. Yes
0: indeed his feature film debut he would have had a bigger part But apparently his uh, scenes were cut because he was so nervous acting around the other actors. That's what he says, at least.
1: Also, he left production early in Mm -hmm. order to uh, do a pilot that uh, I I think it was called The Replacements. uh, It was one of the worst performing uh, television episodes of all time, if I'm (laughs) not mistaken. The Expendables. He was the. It was a TV movie called The Expendables.
0: Tim Allen said, "I think of Enrico Colantoni and all the Thermians mannerisms and noises that he came up with. It was ingenious and difficult as hell to act opposite. I couldn't imagine trying to do scenes with." those guys doing that stuff. It would be, like, so difficult. Justin Long, uh, the plucky young fan that ends up helping them save the day, was actually given a copy of the documentary Trekkies to prepare for the role. Um, He was not a big sci-fi nerd. Personally, he was actually much more of an acting nerd and just couldn't believe he was in a movie with all these people, (laughs) Uh, which, again, I would feel the same way. I mean, uh, what a ridiculous-ass cast. Tim Allen said, we all became pretty good friends off this, which isn't the norm in this business. I think of these guys in Sigourney all the time, and even in like cast photos, the promotion stuff, like kind of red carpety stuff, you see that love. I think it, it shines through, and it's really cool. And uh, I just what? A, and there's such a ragtag crew of actors. Uh,
1: <laughs> one last weird casting thing: uh, Young Laredo, uh, uh, Daryl Mitchell's character. Tom, as Daryl Mitchell plays Tommy Weber, who is like the precocious Will Wheaton kid on the show, but now he's aged. So in the flashback scenes of the original show, uh, his character is played by a young Corbin Blue, who uh, are weird Gen Z listeners. I know there's like five of you out there. We're not all <laughs> aging millennials uh, listening right now. Uh, he was uh, from High School Musical. Ah. He played the, uh, the I Don't Dance uh, guy <coughs> from uh, <laughs> High School Musical.
0: fantastic. Very important fact.
1: If you're in Gen Z, <laughs> this was the most important fact I could have shared.
0: <laughs> you just got seen. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Uh, so, filming. The production designer, Linda DeSinna. Uh, but every single person I'm going to talk about, like you already mentioned the, the special effects people, are, are like ridiculously, they seem like overqualified for like what this movie is. But uh, again, they made this spectacular like cult classic So it is what it is. Linda DeShinna, Academy Award winner, uh, who did production design for Star Trek, the motion picture in 1979. She uh, was the production designer for this film, drew inspiration from TV shows like Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, but also the art of Roger Dean. Check out the album cover Yes Songs by Yes. That was the specific image that uh, Linda used for a lot of the creative input for the film. Uh, it was mostly shot in studios in L.A. Uh, they did also do that Desert Alien Planet shoot at Goblin Valley State Park in Utah. Um, and yeah, that, not a lot did of- Rickman did
1: not you know. appreciate being stuck in a fully prosthetic headpiece and a wool uh, full body uniform during that I didn't film. didn't think
0: about that. Yikes. Uh, and then, yes, visual effects done by Industrial Light and Magic uh, led by Bill George, a guy with two first names- uh, he also is a guy who worked on Ghostbusters 2, Interspace, The Goonies, and Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, among many, many others. So many, in fact, that I those are like very choice th- four movies, but there were a ridiculous amount of movies for me to choose from in order to put in my notes. Like It's crazy the pedigree of of these people creating the effects and doing the art design and everything. It's like ludicrous.
1: A few interesting things about the filming that uh, I picked up on was uh, at one point, uh, another Spielberg suggestion was that the set looked kind of dead and that they should use an old trick he learned while filming which was they should lay out reflective mylar on the floor Mm. to kind of bounce light around and make things seem more vibrant rather than a cold, dead spaceship. Mm. And so they did that, and within the first few hours of filming, the mylar began ballooning and melting under the stage lights, and they had to completely uh, scrap it and redo the set. Thanks, Steven. Uh, Another interesting special effect they tried to do was to put the entire bridge set on a moving gimbal, So that instead of just shaking the camera when something got hit, the entire uh, set would get shaken around for a more believable effect. Uh, I don't know if that was worth the effort, but there was behind the scenes featurette and they were like, this is insane. No one has ever done this.
0: (laughs) Also, what the fuck is a gimbal? Uh, It's like a
1: motion uh, uh, compensation I just uh, wish I could
0: ra- call the guy who named all these things and just let him know he's an asshole.
1: Another thing was Parasite made in, uh, a lot of use of um, aspect ratios throughout the filming. Uh, the movie starts with a standard, like a uh, right. three by two television aspect ratio. It then goes into the real world, quote unquote, and does a standard uh, widescreen movie format. I, I'm not a film nerd, I don't know the exact names. But then. Once Tim Allen goes into uh, it's disc- he realizes he's in space and he kind of sees the universe on that little like weird wet teleporter platform. The movie goes cinemascope like extra widescreen that kind of like full anamorphic uh, uh, aspect ratio. And the rest of the movie kind of stays there because now their eyes have been opened and like they've kind of ascended to an even higher plane of existence. Um which caused massive issues during uh, the original theater run because a lot of uh, projector assistants would just kind of not realize that happens, and the movie would get cut off by the curtains. And even uh, anniversary screenings were kind of muddled by this because they would use like the DVD cuts, or they just the uh, the the sc- the magic of the of futzing with the screen ratio. Uh, just is it's if you if you have a version that does all of it you lucked out because it's actually kind of hard to pull off after the fact.
0: Dean Parasot literally said this about it as the movie as well. Part of it, the mission for me was to make a great Star Trek episode. And so there's all these little things in there, departing the space dock and the malfunctioning transporters. These are homages to the first Star Trek film. There's uh, also the fact that the movie was originally titled Galaxy Quest, the motion picture, which again was supposed to be, you know, a take on Star Trek. Uh, There are also tons of nods to other great sci-fi movies and TV shows. The Thermian's native planet uh, being called a Klaatu Nebula. That is a reference to the alien visitor from the film The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, And the the blue creatures on the alien planet were based on some creatures in the film Barbarella. So, yeah, just all these little, like, nods. And I think, again, you get a sense of that watching the film. The, The nerd love is very present. And I think... It would not work without it, uh, for sure. So, uh, yeah, they were after filming. You know, kumbaya filming process. From from the sounds of it, like everybody just having a blast together. But they were immediately hit with issues after filming. A total reverse from the positive vibes on set. Mark Johnson said, DreamWorks didn't know, didn't know what to make of the film. I wouldn't go so far as to say they didn't believe in it, but it wasn't what they felt like they ordered. Sigourney Weaver said, To me, they didn't seem particularly interested in what we were doing, which gave us more freedom during the shoot. But the last minute, DreamWorks decided it needed a movie to go up against Stuart Little, the
1: mouse movie. So they chose this one and started making cuts to the film. So DreamWorks was actually actively distracted during this time. They were given a ton of leeway because uh, DreamWorks was had all their hair on fire over uh, Russell Crowe's Gladiator, which ah, had a death which- on set, which had massive crowd scenes, which was supposed to be their big prestige picture. Again, DreamWorks needed to prove that they were the big boys and could stand with all these legacy studios. So they really did like kind of have a lot of leeway. And so when it was time to like present the movie, DreamWorks was like, this doesn't help our bottom line. This doesn't help us kind of compete with everyone else. Um, If anything, uh, it was the smash box office success of the Rugrats movie that really made DreamWorks scared because they realized they had nothing in their kind of docket to compete for the family movie. And so, someone somewhere along the line decided, well, we can make Galaxy Quest the family movie. And that uh, caused a lot of friction.
0: Yeah, because this movie was a lot hornier than it ended up being. <laughs> <laughs> It initially was way hornier. She, uh, uh, First of all, just Sigourney, we already mentioned how she was supposed to say fuck, but it really was one of those things where, like, Deep Parasol said, that moment where she swears got so many laughs, it was a shame they cut it. I purposefully dubbed it really badly so it would stick out, <laughs> which is great. Uh, and Weaver said, that all had to go so they could make a kid's movie, which is such a shame. I would buy Galaxy Quest with the cutscenes added back just to see Alan doing some of those scenes This was a very sophisticated picture, and they could have had a wider audience with the more adult take on the Star Trek of it. Yeah, apparently, uh, uh, Alan Rickman had like a bunch of weird, horny scenes as well, which I'm like dying to know what the fuck those were about. Uh, They they also just the fact that Sigourney Weaver suddenly her bra is just showing for the second half of the film with no explanation. That's because they cut a whole scene where she tries to seduce the aliens, and like because one of the aliens is like. Doesn't understand why, but is like attracted to a human woman. Yeah, and they're doing the around Michelle them is like what's wrong the with Michelle
1: you? Nichols fan dance. Like everyone leans into yeah. that that trope. Um, right. Yeah. No. The there was going to be way more swearing, way more uh, cynicism, and the results of this marketing uh, were really kind of considering how much good stuff and how much sophisticated things are happening in the actual movie. Um, if you can, uh, I, I, I beseech the sound cue gods, please hear my cry. Uh, if you can play the 1999 TV ad for Galaxy Quest that makes it just sound like it was, my parents are space aliens. Never give up, never surrender. From out of work actors. By the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you to outer space heroes. You will
0: save us. We are
1: actors, not astronauts. DreamWorks Pictures invites you to bravely go. Hi, oh, little guy. Oh. Where no comedy has gone before. Yeah. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Galaxy Quest, rated PG, starts Saturday, December twenty fifth. Everywhere, like just a <laughs> just a dumb like family comedy. Because honestly, that marketing turned me away back in when I was the right Same. age to watch it. Uh,
0: well, I just talked about how it was like this film to me originally seemed more like Mom and Dad Save the. Which, by the way, not to trash on that movie. I enjoy, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. But still, it's that that movie is like ridiculous and kind of cheesy or whatever, right? Yeah. Or, uh, you know the or the one where the with the tv cha- they they get zapped into the tv you know it's like what it was like that and yeah it, it, they really hammered it home that it was going to be a movie like that a, like a cheesy comedy for families and uh it really is a shame because yeah that's why i mean again i didn't see it in the theater and i watched a lot of movies in the theater at that time i definitely didn't catch it till it was on hbo for exactly that reason it looked like a cheesy kid movie for kids So yeah, it just, you know, they put very little promotional efforts behind the film. Mark Johnson said, we never felt the campaign did the movie justice. The movie was successful with over $90 million in earnings, but this film should have done twice that. The home video ser- uh, sales were incredible. Parasat said most films fall off during the second weekend, uh, and we were seeing Galaxy Quest climb in its second weekend and climb again during its third weekend. Jeffrey Katzenberg called me during the second weekend and said, "I think we screwed up the advertising for this jeez I'm sorry yeah, that is the last call you want from the from from the uh Production house.
1: Well, I mean, the fact that he got a I'm sorry from Jeffrey fucking Katzenberg is actually kind of it's an achievement.
0: Kind of incredible. Yeah. Most so- calls
1: from Jeffrey Katzenberg of that era were I'll fucking cut your balls off, you little shit. I will <laughs> rip your balls off. I will serve them to my dogs. And my dogs love balls. I beat them um, up. I beat up my dogs. I'm Jeffrey Katzenberg.
0: I, my, yeah, I use, I, my dogs normally don't like human balls, but then I started got them on an all balls diet. And then I noticed they've been seeing some really good results. So they've been working out. Out and I've been working out. And anyways, I'll feed, you know. And it goes into the whole ball feeding.
1: Now i got to get back to the screenplay of Shrek, which I personally wrote and I will never admit to the world.
0: <laughs> That's a lie. I lied just then. That is a lie. Indeed. Thank you uh, for acknowledging that lie. Uh, so... The show ends up though, as we said, you know it 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 does better in its second weekend, uh, which is very un unusual, uh, very unusual for a film release, which also just goes to show that they fucked up and that you know the the people were starting to realize that, oh, this was like a sleeper awesome movie uh that that we should definitely check out. Uh, it, it, despite its, like, amazing cast, too, even you, you see a cast like that, uh, you would see a cast like that almost, like, on an Academy Award-winning film, but still, it just kind of was this weird sleeper thing, but uh, miraculously, it ended up doing, you know, it, I think getting around in a big way, I hope. We'll see how the numbers are in this episode.
1: I think it was one of those uh, basic cable movies. I think it had a good run on HBO. I think it did a lot of... Uh, I think it was a good cable rerun movie.
0: totally great especially with that surprising emotional note that rickman hits uh, near the end it just is so such a surprise i think to that kind of home audience that just wanted to throw on like a goofy film in the middle of the day and then they're all of a sudden just like why am i crying you know what i mean i think it does a good job that. hell
1: i cried when uh when sam rockwell's character gets a last name at the end during oh. that little montage for the reboot series so good god he's so funny in that movie.
0: Uh, so yes, they did attempt to get a sequel. It's kind of like always a sequel, but also actually a TV show sequel. Uh, they've been trying to get that off the ground for a, quite a while. And and I love how involved like Sam Rockwell is in this in these discussions. Like clearly the passion is there from all these like A list actors to go back to this silly sci fi comedy film and like keep making more. Um, Sam Rockwell said after Alan Rickman passed. We didn't know what to do with the story. So Rickman died of cancer in 2016. Rest in peace. Uh, and that is what really has since thrown, I think, a lot of things off. Tim Allen said, we hadn't been able to put anything together since Allen's passing, and I would love to bring everyone back together again. In 2017, Amazon was moving forward with a series written by Paul Scheer, uh, which sounds awesome, who wanted to explore what has happened to some of these sci-fi franchises in the year since 1999. Shear said, I really wanted to capture the difference between the original cast of Star Trek and the J.J. Abrams cast of Star Trek. And I think the idea would have been that they were gonna have it was a story about a reboot cast mm-hmm. uh, meeting the original cast. Yeah, eventually by the end of the first season, I think is like they decide to work together. Kind of that's the arc. Uh, but then there was a rearranging of Paramount's executives, and so the series was put on hold. However, in 2021, Tim Allen stated that a sequel script was completed, though there were no actual plans to go into production. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. And later that year, this is the most interesting, actually, for this little sequel talk. Writer Georgia Pritchett wrote on Veep, Succession, great, great shows, Veep, great comedy that I feel like you could pull a lot of that tone and put it into a Galaxy Quest film, claims that she was working with Simon Pegg on a TV series for Galaxy Quest. Weird. Now is June of... That was June of 2021, so we may get a Simon Pegg helmed Galaxy Quest thing in our future, and I think that is actually the perfect person to helm a sequel series. And of
1: course, because this is a Wizard and the Bruiser episode, we cannot acknowledge anything without, yes, IDW Publishing did a tie-in comic book as an unofficial <laughs> sequel to the events of the movie. I didn't
0: even realize. I did. I didn't even see that. There's always
1: everything has an IDW sequel in comics. It's just. <laughs> it's like you. It's part of the deal. I think.
0: Uh, Jake, I have a couple quotes, but I think that's about it from me. Do you have anything else? Any factoids? Any fun little, you know, factum ups? For us,
1: or or words of wisdom, or just
0: some, you know, or just advice for the children of the world. Uh,
1: advice for the children of the world is uh, eat your vegetables, uh, stay out of the sun; it's poison. Stay indoors. Play video games all day. Um, in the, uh, it's available for free on Prime at the moment. Uh, Never Surrender: A Galaxy Quest Documentary. I wanted to talk about this during the uh, post production woes, but I just it slipped my mind. Uh, producer Elizabeth Cantillon uh, talks about how uh, while doing test screenings, where they were doing back and forth over the PG-13 PG rating, uh, she uh, left the screening to go to the bathroom, and there a woman followed her and started berating her, saying that the movie was so too filthy that her children uh, can't see this kind of filth. (laughs) And the quote that will ring in my head was, how dare you, this is a Tim Allen movie. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> a guy who was arrested for a pound of cocaine. Over, yeah. over a pound. Over, well over, well over. It's like 1.7. Uh, yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, but uh, I, and, and hilarious, It was like, girls it's going to be way filthier than that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're lucky. Yeah, I have this, a uh, couple of quotes from some, you know, Star Trek uh, legends. First from Patrick Stewart. I had originally not wanted to see Galaxy Quest because I heard that it was making fun of Star Trek, and then Jonathan Frakes rang me up and said... You must not miss this movie. See it on a Saturday night in a full theater. And I did. And of course, I, fa- I found it was brilliant. Brilliant. No one laughed louder or longer in the cinema than I did. But the idea that the ship was saved and all of our heroes in that movie were saved simply by the fact that there were fans who did understand the scientific principles on which the ship worked was absolutely wonderful. And it was both funny and also touching and that it paid tribute to the dedication of those these fans. And and to me, that's why it works.
1: Could you read that uh, last part in your best passage Patrick Stewart voice-holding. No one laughed harder, or louder, or longer in the cinema than I
0: did. But the idea that the ship was saved and all of the heroes in that movie were saved simply by the fact that there were fans who did understand the scientific <laughs> principles on which, I think I'm going Saruman, <laughs> I'm going Christopher <laughs> Lee.
1: You're going a little Christopher Lee, but I love the it. The
0: ship worked. It was absolutely wonderful. And it was both funny and also touching in that it paid tribute to the dedication of these fans. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> so I'm just going
1: Classic Patrick uh,
0: Stewart. Classic Patrick Stewart. Uh, then you have George Takei. I will not be doing a George Takei uh, accent, by the way. What? It's not going to
1: That's one of the easiest ones to do.
0: Oh my! <laughs> I think it's a chillingly realistic documentary. Uh, he says, laughing. The details in it, I recognize every one of them. It was a powerful piece of documentary filmmaking. And I do believe that when we get kidnapped by aliens, it's going to be a genuine, true Star Trek fans who will save the day. I was rolling in the aisles, and Tim Allen had that Shatner-esque swagger down pat. And I roared when the shirt came off, and Sigourney rolls her eyes and says, there goes that shirt again. How often did we hear that on set? (laughs) I just love it. And to have these, like, Star Trek, you know actors come out and talk about how they loved this movie and how they were so happy at, at the treatment of the fans mm-hmm. and at the treatment of of the, the legacy of Star Trek, sci-fi fandom in general. I think that's just a really lovely magical thing. I think that's what makes this film so magical. It's like surprisingly funny, surprisingly hits dramatic notes, and the biggest surprise of all is actually just treating uber nerds with Respect and dignity.
1: Respect and dignity, but not and so, up But actors. not like money-hungry, salivating, pandering that we get now, which I feel like yes. is a key distinction.
0: Yeah, it's not a dick-sucking that they get. It's a...
1: A, like, a pat on the butt. Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. You're all right, kid. All right. I think that about does it. Thank you so much for joining us for our Galaxy Quest episode. Uh, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Uh, $5 a month you get weekly episodes for $15 a month you can join us on Sundays for our Sunday study session where we cover whatever topic hey this last week we hung out and had a great time watching Galaxy Quest also you can check me out twitch.tv forward slash uh, Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams
1: Jake? uh cannot stress enough that the Patreon that's patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew is how you can support us and the bonus episodes are a rollicking good time and at this point if you're hang, if you just you're, you're hankering for more whiz brew, you have hundreds of fun discussions that you can listen to on that Patreon. Um, you can find me on Twitter at best Jake Young. Uh, read all my thoughts and plops and get little sneak previews of uh, bits of research from the upcoming episodes. And uh, hey, I'm a VTuber, man. Yeah, I'm a virtual. I'm a virtual YouTuber. I, I got the bug. I was uh, razzled by the episode. And uh, that we covered on VTuber. So if you go to YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared, that's all one word, Puppet Jared. Uh, we have a bunch of streams up already that uh, you can watch. I think we had a lot of fun. Holden, you and Jackie Zabrowski guested on our uh, Blockbuster debut stream. Uh, and this is uh, true? it was a rollicking good time. Uh, it would mean a lot to me if you subbed. It would mean a lot to me if you checked it out. And, uh, you know, leave a comment. Leave a message. Let me know what you think. Because uh, Puppet Jared is here for at least an indeterminate amount of time.
0: And I love it, and I'm so excited for you, and the stream, the uh, the debut big stream was so much fun to do. Alright,
1: uh, yeah, I think that's it, and always remember, never stop bruising, and keep on whizzing. Or, also, never surrender, never give up. <laughs> <laughs> never surrender.